Hello, and welcome to the AgriFood Safety Produce Bites podcast, where we discuss all things produce safety and dive into the rules and regulations surrounding the Food Safety Modernization Act Produce Safety Rule. I'm Allison Work, and I'm the digital media designer for MSU Extension. Today, we're going to be talking about the risks associated with water and what's required by the produce safety rule when it comes to inspecting your water systems. Uh, my name is Marissa Shu. I'm with Michigan State University Extension. I'm a vegetable production educator. So in the summer, I spend a lot of time right now working on a lot of rotten pumpkins, mushy peppers, stuff like that. But I also do a lot of this food safety, FISMA stuff uh, on the side. My name is Jordan DeVries. I'm a produce safety technician uh, covering the western half of the lower peninsula of Michigan. And I work with producers on the Produce Safety Risk Assessment. It's a MEEP-like program to assess risks and get a certificate to show customers. And I also work with MSU Extension on the on-farm readiness reviews and um, PSA grower trainings. This is Don Steckel. I'm with the Produce Safety Alliance at Cornell University. I am actually located in Columbus, Ohio, because I work with the 12 states of the Midwest or upper or um, North Central region, working on produce safety training, specifically the uh, Produce Safety Alliance grower training in support of FISMA produce safety rule. So I know we talk a lot about water here. Why is water such a big deal when it comes to produce safety? I like to use the example that water is the universal solvent and it is also really good at um, being a carrier in that respect, and so it can get into a lot of the places on fruits and vegetables that we don't necessarily want um, something being introduced to that might be carrying a bacterial or fungal spore or, or a viral um, virion. And so what we're trying to you know, reduce risks here, um, water can bring a lot of things in, be it uh, through irrigation water or um, crop protection sprays or even some post-harvest water. So we have to be on the lookout for, um, you know, bugs don't just magically appear on things. There's a carrier that moves them from A to B, or they're moving through the air and the wind. And water is probably the best one out there for uh, being a, a carrier. Yeah, I think Jordan made some really good points that, uh, you know, water is really important for crop production, and it's commonly used in post-harvest handling and sanitation. On a lot of the farms, the water from those piped systems touches almost every unit of produce. So the sanitary quality of that water is really important for safety. I think it's important to point out how many outbreaks in the past several years have had water as a potential contributing factor in terms of how did the contamination get onto the produce. Yeah, I think it's not just helpful to think about how important water is on the farm, but also how important water is to a lot of these uh, pathogens that cause outbreaks. Um, water moves them around, but water is also one of the things things like bacteria need to reproduce. And they can be a really good place for things like bacteria to reproduce. So not only do they move stuff around, but they can be places where, you know, one bug can become a lot of bugs if the conditions are right. So if we're talking about water sources, how would you rank water sources from the highest risk to the lowest risk? So I think it's helpful when you're looking at the different water sources you have on the farm to think about how much control you have over that water source, um, how much people, you know, maybe not just you, but maybe the municipality you live in, how many people are keeping an eye on what's happening with that water source. If you're, you know, using maybe city water on a small farm, there's a whole system in place that keeps bacteria 
out of that water if you're looking at a river that flows through multiple farms, multiple counties, multiple municipalities, all kinds of stuff could be happening in that river. And it's really hard to know what's happening upstream and how that might impact how sanitary that water is. So I think it all starts to thinking about kind of control, <laughs> how much you as a grower are able to control what's happening with your water sources. I guess I wanted to start by just going to the basics. And uh, a lot of the outbreaks that have happened with produce are from pathogens that are known as fecal oral pathogens. And you can figure that one out for yourselves. Uh, it turns out that a lot of animals on the landscape, uh, well, they don't use toilets. So not just water flows downhill, but everything water carries flows downhill. And so that that's why I, I would start off by saying that surface water tends to be the highest risk because it has the exposure for all those things that are in the environment. So since we're talking about surface water, um, what are some other sources of contamination of surface water and how might growers minimize some of those risks? So I guess how much ability you have to minimize those risks, again, depends on how much control you have over the water source even with something like a surface water source you might if it's you know it's a irrigation pond on the farm you might have a little bit more ability to control how attractive that area is to animals who might poop in the water you have more control in that situation than you do if you're talking about pulling water from a river or a stream um so i guess then you get into some of those really tricky kind of frustrating wildlife management uh type issues you have to tackle you know how do you uh, ways to make ponds unattractive so that geese don't want to lay, you know, mowing, riffraff, scare tactics, potentially, stuff like that can help keep animals out. So even in the surface water, that can be really risky, or at least preventing some of the poop uh, from getting on that hill to flow downward in the first place, to return to what Dawn said earlier. I guess we haven't talked about really uh, wells at all at this point, another really common source. One of you guys want to talk a little about wells and some of the risks there and what you can do? Yeah, I'll take that on. So even though the um even even though things that are um pooping don't normally live deep underground where the well water is coming from, we do have to be aware of some of the risks with wells. And basically we're talking about how can water get from the surface into the well. So I know we're going to talk more about the water safety system inspections later in the episode, but things like backflow prevention to make sure that water doesn't pour down the inside of the well, having sanitary seals on the well cap so water can't go down, um, knowing whether or not your um, space around the well borehole is well grouted and that water can't flow around the outside of the well. And then uh, the other thing that, that makes me think about um, wells and risks with wells is the geology of the, of the um, area that you're living in. Um, People refer to karst areas where there are underground caves as areas where there are underground rivers. So even though the water might be coming out of the ground and coming from deep, the water that's feeding that well might have been on the surface um, fairly recently and might be carrying some fecal contamination. So although well water is generally considered to be safer because it has, if it's, if it's a well-developed well, it has that impervious layer between the surface and the aquifer that it's drawing from. Uh, there are still some vulnerabilities to be aware of. And Don, that's a great point too. In my area of West Michigan, we've got some areas where um, there's a little saltwater inundation into the, the deep horizons of the um, aquifers. So a lot of farms that do blueberries have to have a horizontal sock well, which is more or less a, a, maybe a 20 to 30 foot deep uh, recharge well. 
that they draw off. And we have to consider those as surface water sources because there's not a confining layer of clay uh, to really filter out any, any bad pathogen bacteria. So we've talked a lot about these risk factors, but it's kind of hard for farmers to actually know how much poop is in the water source unless they're setting up motion cameras and being able to see when and where every animal poops. Is there any tests that can be done for them to get an idea of the sanitary quality of their water source? Yeah, so under the produce safety rule, um, you use testing for generic E. coli in your water to get an idea of if um, if there might be bacteria and poop in the water. Um, so when you're doing the test under FSMA, you're doing uh, what are called generic E. coli tests. And what these are really telling you um, is that there's poop in the water. We're talking about E. coli. There's one um, toxigenic E. coli species we're concerned about that causes outbreaks, but it's too expensive to test for just that one. So we test for just E. coli generally and um, E. coli bacteria that like to live, you know, like we've talked about in the digestive tracts of animals. So when you're getting generic E. coli hits, that basically is telling you there's poop in this water and there might be this toxigenic E. coli in there, but there might be some of the other stuff we know can hang out in poop like Salmonella, hepatitis A, cryptosporidium are all different things that can be found in poop. So if you're getting hits for generic E. coli, that means there's some poop in the water and there's some stuff you might um, need to take a look at and think about when you're thinking about using that water. Um, for a really deep dive into the specific water testing requirements under FSMA um, and how to find a lab, check out the notes of this podcast. We've done a whole episode about working with a water lab and figuring out the testing. So that's a good thing to check out if you want to really dig into this generic E. coli testing. All right. So if we move on to irrigation, what method of irrigation is the highest risk when it comes to produce safety? And what's the lowest risk? I think what's uh, usually considered high risk um, in in the food safety industry is something where a um, surface water is going to directly contact the growing or harvestable portion of the crop. Um, where we're really concerned with anything that may be uh, in that surface water, being able to find a niche where it might be protected from sunlight on that crop and then be able to uh, have that be infected or uh, contaminated. So certainly um, that's a high-risk practice when we're talking about either solid set or maybe even a traveler or center pivot irrigation system that's coming off of uh, a surface water source maybe even a pond that has been filled by a well, we still have to consider that surface water. I guess the other thing we see, at least in Michigan, as far as irrigation would go, uh, would be drip irrigation, which is generally considered uh, a lot safer food safety-wise for most crops. You know, if your drip irrigation system is working fine, no one has punctured it, ran over the tractor or anything, that water is not going to touch the tomatoes. It's not going to touch the thing you actually end up harvesting. Um, if you drip irrigating carrots, for example, that water would be touching the carrots. So there might be some, some risk there, but it's all about thinking about for your irrigation system you have on your farm, is that water going to touch the thing you eventually harvest? And if it is, there's going to be some level of risk. Marissa, you just brought up a great point. And I, I guess I wanted to ask a, a question of you to, to bring it out a little more. A lot of people think that drip irrigation because it's not intended to contact the covered produce is 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 you know it's it's lowest risk in general but sometimes people don't think about what could go wrong and i know you've got a lot of experience that in the field and so do you jordan 
would you have some things that you might want to point out that could go wrong with drip irrigation that would cause it to be a higher risk? I mean, I would just say, you know, there are people operating your machines. There are people hand weeding out there. Like mistakes happen. <laughs> I think a couple times a year, you know, I'm asked like, I'm seeing some tomatoes with spots. Can you go out and look at them? It's like, you know, this is the reason there's spots in tomatoes. I'm going to send you a map point here. Your irrigation system is leaking like crazy. And there's like a huge puddle and water squirting everywhere in the air. Like, I think this is the thing you really like the tomatoes are spotted, but make sure you deal with this first. Um, so even if you don't intend for your drip water to touch the produce uh, in any given year, things can happen with that system where it might still touch your produce. So I think it's good to acknowledge that that happens. And then that's one of the reasons it's still good to know something about the water you're using. Even if you don't intend for it to touch your crop, it still might just because, you know, we're working in human, human run system outside where, you know, errors in nature can make all kinds of things happen. Yeah. I've actually seen it on a few risk assessments where, um, and I often recommend to um, have, people start their drip system up even when they're not needing it, when there may not be a crop on the plants, but to, to see where it's spraying or, or emitting um, before there's a real risk out there with a, a covered um, crop on the plants. I've seen where voles have uh, chewed drip lines and you might even get uh, with enough pressure, um, a, a stream of water shooting straight up onto the crop and that would make that a um, overhead application like scenario. So then how can the timing of irrigation affect the safety of the crop? Well, I'll start because this is one of my, this, this is one of my sticking points a little bit. Um, one thing that we know about is that the bacteria and, and, and other pathogens that can cause disease are generally happiest inside a warm-blooded animal that we've been talking about before. So they're expecting a 98-degree temperature. They're expecting moisture. They're protected from sunlight. So when the pathogen gets onto a crop in the environment, generally speaking, they're not well acclimated to being in that environment. They, they don't survive very well in that environment. So they're generally going to die off. So more time between application and harvest is, 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 is considered a risk reduction measure. But I do want to point out that it's not fail-safe. If I, I believe it was Keith Schneider down in Florida has research showing that uh, salmonella on the outside of a tomato, if that tomato is oozing any juices with sugars, those salmonella can actually grow on the tomato. There's also research that um, um, that researchers at USDA ARS have done showing that when pathogens are, when water that is contaminated with pathogens is sprayed onto a blossoming fruit, those pathogens can actually get incorporated to the inside of the fruit and they can survive inside that fruit. So in that case, time isn't going to be your savior. So in general, time helps, but, I, but I, the better approach or the safer approach is to avoid using contaminated water in the first place. All right. And then lastly, what is required by the FISMA produce safety rule when it comes to inspecting your water systems? So when you look at what the, uh, what the FISMA produce safety rule says about inspections, I think the most important thing to point out is the overall goal. And I'll, I'll, I'll quote just a little bit from the rule. It says that you need to identify conditions that are reasonably likely to introduce known or reasonably foreseeable hazards into or onto covered produce or food contact services. So, I mean, your goal is to find out 
where is the hazard? And by hazard, we're talking about pathogens that might get onto the produce and how are they going to get there? So there are a couple of clear elements on how to do that. Some, some, some fact, factors in the rule that uh, the FDA requires to be part of the water system inspection. First thing is, is it groundwater, surface water, or municipal water? What's the type of water? Second thing is, do you have control over it? In other words, if it's a pond on your property, you have control over it. But if it's a river flowing into your property, well, then you don't have control over it. So understanding your level of control is an important part of that inspection. Understanding if it's protected, in particular, we were talking about wells earlier. Are those wells grouted appropriately? Is the, is the aquifer protected from, from, uh, from infiltration from above, from surface water? So what's the level of protection of that water source? Um, another thing that's valuable and to know and part of the rules requirements are what are the uses of adjacent land? You might know about the uses of adjacent land. You might not be able to control those uses of adjacent land. But we think about in particular things like the CAFO operations in Arizona that were potentially a contributing factor to some of the romaine outbreaks that we've had recently. Knowing what that adjacent land is being used for can help you understand some of the risks that might come onto your property, some of the hazards that might come onto your property and help you make appropriate decisions. And then finally, in general, the, the requirement of the inspection is to know the likelihood that the water coming onto your land is contaminated. And, and all those factors kind of weigh into that decision of what's the likelihood that the water is contaminated. And then there's a whole nother section about maintenance, but I'll, I'll stop there and let anybody else weigh in with their thoughts on the topic. Thanks, Don. That was a really great overview. Um, I just wanted to point out that, um, you know, I think in a lot of cases, because farms are used to especially testing for any housing that they have, of, of doing their, um, you know, their standard E. coli tests, uh, presence, absence every year, and really kind of almost relying on the test too much and not thinking about any possible changes to their water system that have occurred. Maybe it was a new person uh, connecting things and putting them together, uh, maybe even a putting on the backflow preventer backwards. You want to follow that arrow that's there. Um, and another one I like to point out too is in some areas with um, a lot of high calcium or even um, iron in the water, uh, a backflow system, um, you want to check the uh, actual uh, plug or prevention mechanism to see if it's making a good seal because uh, you may not be able to consistently get that seal year after year if you've uh, got uh, dissolved particles in the water. Or even just like zooming out a little from that, like is your backflow in your well even something you yourself can see? Or is it something that the guy who put in your well is telling you is there and it's underground somewhere, but you have no way of looking at it and verifying that it's still functional? That's something that I run into a lot on farms. Yeah, and, and if I had a dollar for every time I've seen uh, open well caps or cracked conduits, um, I, I might have a new uh, career field to go into. And I think I think those comments play directly into the, uh, the 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 part of the inspection that has to do with maintenance, because the the rule does require that the distribution system be inspected and maintained. Uh, to prevent water distribution system from becoming a source of contamination. So that's where backflow protection, uh, that's where uh, cross connections come in. Uh, I have been aware of situations not in Michigan where people are using the distribution system to pump um, holding pond manure 
pond water for a land application and then they turn around and use that for irrigation the following the following season so that's a situation where the distribution system might be a source of contamination and then finally the the, uh, the inspection of the water source or the maintenance of the water source requires that um, you look at conditions that might introduce hazards to the produce and correct deficiencies. And that's where they're talking specifically about, and they mentioned specifically, the well cap, the well casing, sanitary seals, tanks, treatment equipment, and cross connections as deficiencies in a well water source and distribution system that need to be corrected. The surface water has to be free from debris, trash, and domesticated animals. So you can't let your so I count children in with domesticated animals. Swimming in the irrigation pond is not an appropriate thing to do if you're using it as agricultural water. And then there's always the catch all anything that is practical and appropriate under the circumstances. But it's not rocket science. We're trying to keep poop off of produce. And these are all things that we can look for to evaluate whether or not there's a contamination source or a hazard that uh, that, that could be uh, carried to the produce or food contact services with the water. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is that the first part of it is kind of thinking through your systems you have, thinking about the things you've seen and thinking about where the risks might be, and then a part that involves kind of walking through your irrigation system, making sure everything is functional and working the way it should. Links or definitions to anything referenced in this episode are provided in our show notes, which can be accessed on the website at canr.msu.edu slash agrifood underscore safety. Thank you to everyone for listening, and don't forget to tune in next month for another episode of our Produce Bites podcast.